You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we are in, uh, the nation of Israel has been set free. This is actually part four of our study where we're giving, uh, where God is giving the nation rules ordinances because he's actually establishing a nation. They were slaves and now they're free. And I know in these Bible studies, they've been sort of long, sometimes even hard to pull out principles for us today. And yet they're important. It's important for us to go through all the scripture. Uh, Just we do this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at what God would have to say. And we value God's word as we study it. Even if it's sometimes hard for us to study, takes an extra amount of work or time to not only study, but maybe even listen, to listen to some of these verses, uh, just because the volume of it and the amount of it. But remember, this is just a short summary of the 613 Levitical laws that God gave. And in these couple of chapters, these 42 ordinances or laws, um, is actually just a summary of a big book of the Bible. So rather than doing another whole study of the book of the Bible, Leviticus, I'm actually just taking four weeks and sort of giving you an overview of the law, an overview of all these things, Because the Bible does talk about how doctrines are important. Truth, it is important. Principles, we learn from Scripture. They're important to our faith and important of our everyday stuff of life. And so you see, though, before we dive into these rules, I want you to understand once again where rules place in your faith. Because if you look and take a step back from our study, we have to understand where these rules in Exodus Exodus chapter 22, I just told you to turn there, right? Well, that means God first redeemed his people. He first redeemed them, freed them from slavery, and now he is going to guide them and give them rules to follow. This is important for us to make sure as we continue to study the law, because first in our life, what does God do? He redeems us. He saves us. He does all that work makes us free, and then he gives us commands, doctrines, truth, so that we would respond to his scripture and obey and love him. We don't do these rules for his love. Because of his love, we want to obey these rules. It's a big difference, and it's an important distinction that we need to make sure as we continue through this section of the law that we understand God first redeems the heart And then out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we actually play out our faith. What we believe affects our behavior. It goes from our heart to our hands, not the other way around, because only God should be able to be able to boast in our salvation. He's the one that saves, and it was by his work on the cross that he saves us. So now as Christians, we should say, well, what does God want to say about life then? Like, if he saves me, We often say, like, he's my Savior and Lord or Lord and Savior. Like, what does it look like for to follow Jesus then? And the good thing is he's a kind God. He gives us instruction. He gives us his word to equip us to to actually bless our lives so we don't just worship him on a Sunday, but every day. And part of loving God, as we're looking through these rules, is loving people. This is what this summary of the law is all about. It's not just about loving God up and just me and Jesus, man, or me on a Sunday. It's actually Monday through Saturday, working this stuff out with my family, with my friends, with my community, and even affecting our entire world. And this is why I had you turn to Amos first, just to sort of give you another one last glimpse of this law in this last message of the ordinances. Wow, surprised no one said amen. Amen. 
I know Joanna's like, oh, hey man, thank God. Yeah, it's the la- it's going to be the last one. It's going to be the last one. But in the book of Amos, uh, God is using a prophet to rebuke his people, to correct them. Don't think of a rebuke as a harsh thing, a bad thing. It actually is a good thing when God rebukes you or convicts you because he wants you to turn or repent to something life, something good, okay? And so uh, the prophet... Amos is rebuking the people of God. Why? Because they didn't worship him. Uh, They worshiped him only in worship services, but didn't worship him throughout the week. Rather, because they were just doing their own thing, listening to the Lord, coming to church, but they were compartmentalizing their faith. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've compartmentalized your faith. Maybe it's real good to have a program, a service. You come to service, you come to a, a church meeting, and then you go out in life and you just do your thing. God doesn't want that. I don't know if you know this, but God actually made everything. And he wants to be the Lord over your life when you walk out everything. So Amos says this, because God wanted to be their God in the everyday stuff of life. In Amos chapter 5, verses 24, uh, 21 through 24, the prophet says, I hate and despise your feasts. And this is the prophet speaking as for God to the people. God says, I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteous like an ever-flowing stream." God wanted to and still wants to have his people walk in righteousness. You know, the right thing, that there is a right and a wrong way for us to do justice. Like the ocean rolling, or think about an ocean wave crashing over and over. It's a continual, everyday thing. The New Testament would speak about it this way, Titus 3.8. This is a saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that these who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We believe and then we have behavior. We have faith that works. Think about that devotion, crashing waves. It's a constant thing. You're continually devoting yourself. You're giving over to good works that glorify God because you love him and want other people to know him. Jesus said it's the salt and light of the earth. This is a response of our faith to walk out in righteousness, to do the right thing, to be fair, to not show partiality, to help those people, to have compassion, to care, to love, because our God is love. This is the heart behind all of these rules, and oftentimes we have a heart to just check a box. We just want to check the box, get it done, and look, I'm doing good today. It's not even about us. This is God in his grace guiding his people, and God by his grace wants to guide you. He's given you his spirit if you're a follower of Jesus. He's removed your sin. You're no longer a slave of sin. You can walk in righteousness and be a slave of righteousness, the Bible says. And so God wants his people to be reminded to not just come to service, to not just say a prayer once a week, but how do we actually live for him in the everyday stuff of life? So in this last section of ordinance, they're going to deal with justice in our society. We'll pick our study up in verse 16, and we'll go to chapter 23 through 9. Uh, We'll pray, but it's interesting how social justice issues right now are very popular, but they were actually given by God and how to rule a nation. 
He wants justice for a society. He wants justice for a culture. And because they deal with social issues, they're organized sort of like the book of Proverbs. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this last section is all over the place. I mean, like, really. Like, you're going to see, you're talking about this, and then we're going to talk about this, and then it's going to be this and this, and it's not going to sort of make sense. But here's the real deal. I love it. I love how sporadic these issues are in this last section because it actually shows the dynamic of real life. We serve a God that actually deals with real life. You know, the same God where you can go to and laugh and give thanks in one day, and then at the night you can mourn and weep with him. That's, that's real life. Our life isn't just stagnant. It's dynamic. It's ups and downs. It's valleys. It's highs. It's lows. It's all of this thing. And it's not that it's just cookie cutter stuff. It's messy. And God is actually dealing with this and showing us and recognizing it's messy. So he's going to give this law, this law, this law, this law, cover this, cover this. Didn't think about that. Maybe you should do this. What about that? And that's how the book of Proverbs is actually organized, which means God actually cares about your everyday stuff. This is important. This is the heart. This is why it's so sporadic in this last section. And this is what's going to make a fun message tonight. Amen? All right, let's pray and then we'll get into it. God, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. We do pray, Lord, that we would walk in righteousness. We pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you, Lord, would just pour forth fruit from our lives as we abide in you, Christ. We sing a lot about you, Jesus, and we love your name, Jesus. We love pursuing you. We love proclaiming you. We know, God, that you are real, that you have touched our hearts. And for those that don't know, God, would you do that? Would you give them an experience of salvation and taste and see that our Lord is good? Would we be reminded, drawn back to the beauty of Jesus tonight, to the beauty of your truth, that we can actually know right and wrong, learn principles, have guidance, that you are an active God. We are not agnostic, Lord. We believe that you have a providential hand in our life. And so we thank you not only for the moms and the care and the gift and calling they have, we thank you for everyone here, for everyone's calling to be in the workplace, to be retired, to be grandparents. God, that you care about all holistically of our lives. And so we just want to Take some time to worship you now with our minds, to read your scripture, to ask the spirit of God to teach us by the word of God. Point us to Jesus, Father, be glorified in this time, in this moment. And we just thank you, Lord, that we can continue to go to your word and see you. May we see you and your glory. And may we continue to worship. May we continue to live for you. Give us equipping in this moment so that we would not just worship and have a service, but an actual moment with the living God and as your creation. We want to give you honor and thanks, and we want to bless your name. And so it's in your name we pray, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I know that it's hard for me to study these passages. Um, I mean, personally, I know that, but I also know it's hard sometimes to listen. Uh, It's hard sometimes to listen and dive deep and to take the time and the patience and to read all these verses. And I just want to say, you guys have been doing a great job. You know, you're a captive audience. You just, you know, you're, you're listening, praying it's applying to you. It's good. Uh, today, I feel like that popcorn style message where it's like, I don't see three points here. There's a lot of stuff up, out here. But I, I was encouraged because I was reminded of my dad. He's a pastor. And we, me and um, 
Pastor Will, we did a church planning residency and planted a church in Boynton there in Lantana now. And we're actually going to go next weekend to Washington State to do ministry at my dad's church. They financially, prayerfully supported our church here for the last 10 years. And, and now we're going to take a church plant that we've helped support and bring them there and do some ministry. It's going to be great. And I was talking to my dad and I was reminded of this. He didn't say this, but this is something he always says. You know when you have dads and moms, stuff they always say? Like teenagers, your mom's always saying stuff right now. You're going to look back and be like, oh man, I can't believe I remember that stuff. It's important. This is what my dad said about a message. Oftentimes a sermon is like a grocery store. That's what it is. I mean, it's good. He says, not every item is for you. But you take what you need and you take it home to digest. So you don't have to know everything and get everything, but there should be something where you're asking God, God, what is on my list? What is there? The, the sermon is like a grocery store. You take the items, you digest it, you apply it to your life. And as we cover all these verses quickly, my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit gives you the items that you need to walk out of here and be blessed. Some of these will apply more to you and others won't. But it's not only not a principle when we have a sporadic message like this, but in every message, it talks about this. Don't think that, you know, oh, I, I didn't understand that completely. Well, what did you understand? How can you apply it? And so we're going to look at all of these things, like a grocery store just going up and down the aisle saying, ooh, there's this, ooh, there's that. I was recently shopping with my wife, and then um, she goes, you don't go to the grocery store a lot, because I'm like, wait, eggs are this much? Wait, they make this brand of cereal? I had no idea. I haven't been in the grocery store in so long. I don't know. So, um, so yeah, you're going to see that in the Bible. What? The verse says this? I had no idea. It's amazing. Let's start. Verse 16 and 17. Premarital sex. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price. Remember, there was arranged marriage. There's a value of a woman. There would be a bride price back then for her and make her wife, make her his wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, this verse is dealing with the premarital sex and really the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery or fornicate. Uh, details, uh, the details of this seem to be like a mutual consent not dealing with rape because we know in Deuteronomy chapter 22, if there was something that would happen to a woman and she would be taken advantage of in the sexual way, are abused in that way, the penalty would actually be death. And so when this verse says, if the man seduces a lady here, it actually means that it's putting the responsibility on the man for the sexual purity of the relationship. So if they stumble, if they walk in a way that the Lord didn't want them to do that, the responsibility was on the man, and the man was supposed to lead in the relationship, especially when it came to sexual purity in that relationship. This law was to prevent the guy from just having sexual intimacy with all these women and no circumstances. Like we've talked about in our society, men not taking responsibility and just doing whatever they want. God wanted the woman protected. Now, if the couple was to be engaged, betrothed, uh, betrothed uh, and this behavior would happen, he needed to pay a bride price to show value and honor to him and take responsibility for the woman as his wife, unless the father utterly refused, this verse says. 
And so this shows us here that God, he values sexual purity. We need to be reminded of this in our oversaturated sexual culture, where basically there's more money spent on pornography than there are all the sports combined, like football, basketball, hockey, baseball, all of those millions of dollars in contracts that you think they'd be paid outrageously. Our society actually spends more money on pornography than all of that combined. So in our world, in our, in our thing, in our faith, the Bible actually says there would be a lot of problems fixed if we walked in sexual purity, if we actually obeyed God's word. Think about all the problems and things we've talked about, uh, even up, up to this place with broken relationships, to all of these different things that deal with broken sexual intimacy and the ways that God doesn't want us to go. If we were to walk in holiness, it would actually solve a lot of problems. But yet when we give into our flesh, the Bible says it reaps corruption. And this is why the Bible gives us as instructions as Christians that this is the will of God to obey God with our bodies. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Anything outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is a sin, the Bible says. And so it says, have sexual purity. Now, verse 18, prohibition of sorcery. I told you, man, we're going from here to here. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. God doesn't want us to go to demonic power, but rather to him. He doesn't want us to go to sorcery, to witchcraft, to demonic activity, which is real, the Bible says. There is power and in strength. Fallen angels, demons, demonic powers live on this world and there are principalities and heirs. And so the law was to cut off sorcerers or witchcraft people, people that would actually use that power, uh, that medium to be available. God said, no, I, I'm gonna, they're going to be cut off of the land and die because I don't want them to be even tempted and to go in that route because it's going to lead to a lot of uh, problems. And it's interesting because even in our day and age, we could be tempted to think that this is just no big deal. Demonic activity. Did you know that the number one genre in our nation is actually horror? Sort of surprising to me because I hate horror movies. They freak me out. If someone were to, to jump out behind this stage right here, I would scream like a little girl. So I have no interest in horror, but a lot of people do. And because we're so numb to it, just like our over-sexual saturation uh, culture we're so used to violence, we're so used to horror and demonic activity and all this different stuff, the enemy beats all these lies and thinks, well, it's not a big deal. Like a, like a Ouija board is not a big deal, or, or just going to a witch doctor is not a big deal, or tarot cards, that's just sort of fun. What's your horoscope? God's like, no, 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 it is a big deal. I am creator of all, and there, are ev there is evil, there is darkness. You shouldn't go to that, you should come to me. Don't be tempted, people of God, to go to the demonic activity and the powers of darkness for your healing or for your hope. These things are real, and if you've dealt with that stuff, you understand even so much so that demons could possess people, and we need the power of God and the blood of Jesus to actually be able to turn to God, live for him. And so he says, no sorcery, no demonic activity in my land. Don't go to these false things. The next thing he gives is prohibition of sexual relations with animals. Yep, I said that out loud. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal, animal shall be put to death. Now, doesn't this just, just verse seem weird and funny? 
Like, even weird to say, like, do you really need a law to not have sexual intimacy with an animal? Is this a real thing? Is this a joke? Uh, No. Because we get tempted to go to the powers of darkness in our flesh, but don't forget, we have enemies of our soul. The devil is real. Uh, There's the... Uh, our sin nature is also another enemy of our soul. There's the world, the devil, and the flesh. And in our flesh, we underestimate and forget the power of sin and the bondage of sin and how crazy and weird sin can actually take us. And this is really the principle here. Uh, I'm often reminded of some, when I see a verse like this, of that issue of pornography. There's this, this law of diminishing return. Or if you look at something the first time or you do something the first time, it's amazing. It's how people get caught up in drugs. But then as you do it over and over and over again, there's a law of diminishing return. There's less and less and less and less. And the weirder and weirder and weirder things get. And with our sin, sometimes we see the line and we go step, step, step. We even cross the line, but now it's not giving us a high. Now we got to go further, further, further. And this happens actually with sexual activity, pornography, these type of things. And so, yes, this verse is in the Bible because God knows how wicked our heart actually can be. He actually knows the temptations. And listen, this may not be a temptation for you, but let me just warn you, don't neglect the power of your sin nature. The Bible says you're to die to yourself. You're to make, every, to make no provision for the flesh. And don't think that you can just handle it or you can just go, oh, what's... what. If you're asking where the line is and how close it is, you're asking the wrong question. It's a slippery slope. You should just be asking, how can I please God? What is sexual purity? Not what can I have sex with? That's the idea. Verse 20, prohibition of sacrifices to other gods. It says in verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And that word destruction actually means to be set apart, to be put away. Uh, God knows the true danger of worshiping not only ourselves, but other gods. The Bible will call them idols. This is why we have the Ten Commandments, or it's in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods beside me. We've talked about this. An idol is anything that you value, you put worth, you worship besides God. Idols could even be good things made God things. Then they become terrible things. We can idolize our relationship, our status, our power, our money. We can make idols of the heart or even idols that are statues and people can see and notice. But the Bible says that all of our idols will lead to death and only God gives true life. And so it's actually a way of the enemy, he deceives us to have us value things over God or think we are God to be able to think that we are like like we actually put ourselves as an idol and pretend as if we don't have to give an account to God. But here's what, here's what John 3.36 says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are consequences for our actions and our faith, and we need to make sure that we're abiding in Christ, believing in the things he said, not going to other things, because if so, and we have another God, including ourselves, over Jesus, then who's going to take our sin? Who's going to forgive us? Who can actually satisfy us? And this is why the beauty, the Bible actually never exhorts us to look at for the Antichrist or for the other things it can't provide. The Bible says, look to the author and finish of your faith. Always look to Jesus. Go to him. Abide in him. Be satisfied in him. Don't have any other gods before him. Seek his kingdom first and all these things will be added unto you. 
And so God even warns us not to worship idols in the New Testament because it will put us on the wrong path. 1 John 5, 21, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Don't do it. Because we know also that our, what we worship affects our, uh, our behavior, and God wants us to love other people. And so we need the love of God to be in our heart so we can love other people. And that's what these other verses deal with. In verse 21 through 24, it's compassion to the oppressed. So now it's really dealing with behavior, social issues, your neighbor, uh, how you have uh, sexual intimacy, purity with your, your fiance, don't interact with demonic powers, don't lie with animals. It's just giving you all these things. Now in verse 21 through 24, it actually says we, you need to have compassion to the oppressed, the foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless. The foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless. You shall not wrong a sojourner, a foreigner, or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So it's giving you clear behaviors of what you should do and consequences. In verse 23, if you do, not mis- if you do mistreat them, they cry out to me. God actually hears the pain of the oppressed, the widow, the fatherless, those that are being oppressed by others, the foreigner, and I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Now, God wanted Israel to care for others the way that he treated them. You know that whole golden rule thing in the New Testament where Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount? There were people that were foreigners in the land and oftentimes because they were displaced or out of their own country or land or protection, they would be mistreated. They would be taken advantage of. Uh, They would deal with a whole bunch of death um, and even have widows and fatherless people among them. And God was saying, as these people get in a situation where you can take advantage of them, don't. Have compassion. Have love. Care for them. So how are they to be treated? Well, God had wanted the oppressed to have care for, to be loved and dealt with compassion. Now, I know practically speaking, immigration is a political hot topic. It really is. But the Bible speaking over and over again, not just in this text, but others, clearly tells us that we're to love all people and care for all people, especially those that are outside, are displaced, are misfortune, are oppressed, or even the foreigners. God desires for us to love all people, and we can do a lot of good to immigrants in our nation. We shouldn't oppress them, take advantage of them, because they don't speak a language. I think about that verse where Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, we're to go into the nations. Have you ever considered that when sojourners or immigrants come into our nation, God is sending them to us to love? Now, whether they're illegal or legal, we still love them. We still care for them. We know that there's consequences for our laws and actions in our government, and there's a political process. But in our role, in our kingdom set, we love all people. God loves all people, especially those that are marginalized, especially those that are displaced, like a a mom who loves her husband and has been married for years, and then all of a sudden he's gone, and she doesn't know what to do. And she's lost because she's never paid that bill or knows how to fix that. Or a child that that is being abused because the dad's not there to protect. 
These are the type of people that God says, everyone ignores and actually abuses them. You go after them. You love them. You care for them. Yeah, we could take advantage of immigrants or those people that charge them more money for, to help them in a service that really shouldn't be that much money. But no, God says, love them, respect them, have compassion for them. For do you not know that that was your situation? And listen, it's been all of our situations. This world is not the world that we're supposed to live in. God made a beautiful world and it was perfect, but the reality is sin came in and broke our relationship with God. This world is broken. We were actually snatched from light into darkness and sin, and God snatches us back by his blood, by his redemption. We were actually foreigners. The Bible actually says that we were enemies of God and he loved us. And he's saying, yeah, you guys were slaves in Egypt and foreigners. And I heard your cry and I acted. I'm going to hear people's cries. And now the Bible exhorts us to take care of those that are in need. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself abstained from the world. We don't think like the world. Listen, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. This is not our party and our hope. Our, our king is Jesus. And he tells us to love everyone and to care for those that are in need. The widows, the fatherless. You know, I'm personally proud of our church, how we financially have been supporting the House of Blessing for the last 10 years. Just going on a mission trip, seeing the work, just the ministry for kids. It was an orphanage. Now it's in, in, a, in a place to help kids get education. It's important because God wants us to walk in this. One commentator said, God expects us to care for those in need because he cared for us when we were in desperate need. And so he's just reminding them, let me just remind you, walk in love, have respect for the oppressed, but also have compassion for the poor. In verse 25 through 27, 25 through 27, it says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the moneylender to him, and you shall not extract interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is, uh, that is in his only covering, uh, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. Remember, God wants us to be compassionate because he just says he's compassionate. Now, borrow and lending are not forbidden in the Bible. In verse 25, we just read, it actually says you, when you do this or if you do that. There are those that have advantages of business and money and are able to help people and lend people money. And this is a business thing. And there's Proverbs that talk about that to be fair and just in our transactions to people. Uh, but God simply forbids in this text to exploit the poor uh, with crazy interest. And so he's saying, hey, if there's someone that's poor, don't take advantage of them with crazy amounts of interest. Because remember, indentured servitude, if you were in debt and had all this interest laid up, what would actually happen? You would become a servant or a slave to pay off that debt and it would dictate your life and it would be very easy to say, I'll give you this money knowing a person couldn't really pay back and you just bought them into slavery. God's like, no, 
Have compassion for the poor. We know this because he's saying don't charge interest on everything, but for those that really need it, because they have to give a collateral. Literally, verse 26 says, the shirt or the cloak off their own back. Okay? So one of the things that would be valuable back then to have a bed is like a cloak that you would sleep on. And if you're lending something for collateral, you're only belonging to actually have heat for something. That means you're really poor. Okay? And God's like, don't take advantage of them. That means it's pretty easy to take advantage of those people, to give them an interest rate. And God's like, no, don't take advantage of them. Rather, be generous to the poor. Lend them money and give them their cloak back so they can have their need, so they can actually take, pay you back. And it's important for us to know this as well. You know, I think oftentimes about this, especially when I go to Mexico or third world countries and I come back and I'm just like in shock, like culture shock. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you go to a third world and they can't even eat bread. They, they don't even have substance. They're, they're living in, in slums. And you come back to the States and you're like, wow. I should not buy a cup of coffee because I could literally save a human. I mean, that's one of the reasons why my family has always had like sponsorships to Compassion International, Food for Hunger. We sponsor children personally because it's like, wow, all I have to do is like not go out once a week and I could literally change a family's life. There's that need. And I know it doesn't click to us because we're in our own culture right now as Americans, but I want you to hear this. If you have a dollar in your pocket or change in your couch, the Bible actually says that you're rich. Statistically speaking, in America, or in our culture, you are on the upper scale of society. And the Bible gives exhortation to rich people and to poor people. And I know that all of y'all don't think that you're probably rich, but you are. You have liberty to be able to do things. And this is important for us because we want to steward the gifts that God's given us, including finances. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19 says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which means prideful, arrogant, or not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We have so much hope in riches and money and think we're all great and we could buy our happiness, but it says don't put your money in riches. Put it in God who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. So there's nothing wrong with having a nice shirt that you like with a good car or anything like that. It's just saying, don't trust in it. Don't have a love for money. It's a root of all kinds of evil. But what you're to do is steward that well. And the verse continues to go on and says that they, they would have, uh, that they would do good. The rich would do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. They're storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It is a truly giving life to be able to bless people and love people. You know, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And so this is what it's talking about. If you are, have those things, it's not, don't feel guilty, don't feel bad, don't feel shame. Put it to work. Invest in the kingdom. What does that look like? How can you steward that money well? What do you need to do that? Because both in the New Testament and the Old, there's continual and consistent attention given to the weaker groups of people, to the oppressed and to the poor, for us that are able to have compassion on them and to help them. In short, like Luke 6.36 says, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. God wants us as his people to be generous with our finances, with our time, with our life, and especially to those that are in need to the poor. Let us be imitators of God, like Ephesians 5.1 says. 
who was rich and then gave his riches for us so that we would have life. Now, we're not only to respect those people in the society would say, nah, they're not that great. The foreigner, the poor, the widow, the orphan. But you're to respect God and leaders. Verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. This word revile means criticize in abusive or angrily insulting manner. I know none of you would never do that. Criticize in an insulting or abusive, angry manner. And it's really easy, I think, for us as Christians to say, now who would ever do that as believers? We're not going to revile God. But didn't the Bible even give us a command to not take God's name in vain? To not criticize, to that we, have, we could speak death and life in our tongue? We shouldn't not just revile God. That may be an easy thing for us as believers, but it also says we shouldn't revile our leaders. We should show respect. Romans says, give honor to those that are due honor. And again, it may be okay for us as a people of God in the church to say, oh, I respect my leaders. You know, Pastor Robin, Pastor Daniel, oh, they're so great. And I pray for you guys. And listen, we should respect elders. We should respect Christian leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. But again, I think in the Christian church or in our culture, it's probably an easy thing to do because you see and you're in proximity with them and you see that they're loving and trying to be like Christ. But I want to propose to you this. Do you have respect for ungodly leaders? People that oppose you and your ideology? Because this is actually what it's talking about as well. Because if you're going to revile God, you're actually saying, God, you're an enemy of me. You're opposing God. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're going to revile a leader, it's not a leader that loves you and serves you and cares for you. It's someone that you're opposing violently, criticizing, angrily. What about the leaders of our land? What about both Democrats and Republicans? What about both good leaders and bad leaders? Are good bosses or bad bosses? Do we respect those that God has put in authority over our lives and do we submit and make it a blessing to serve them and to love them? Because it actually does take God's love and power to love our enemies and those that we oppose with. And that's what God wants to give us. Respect doesn't just mean we agree with everything our leaders do, but this verse says that we shouldn't be cursing government officials, our bad bosses, which is so common in our culture. There's whole news channels that all they do is this. It's the left idea and their issue. No, it's the right. It's their issue. And literally, we just pick sides and bash one another, getting nothing done, and it's just amazing. But God actually has a better strategy. You know how we love our enemies? Well, Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 through 3 tells us we're to pray for our enemies and for our leaders. We can actually pray for the people that oppose us. You disagree? Okay, well, I'm going to bless you anyway. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. We should be able to bless God and others, i.e. leaders, even though we disagree with some of their things. And this actually means being careful with God because sometimes when we read the Bible or some of these verses, we actually disagree with God. I know you may not say that in your mind, but in your heart, I know that's true. Because it's true with me. Don't you ever read a verse and you're like, ah, I wish that verse wasn't there. 
I don't want to read that right now. God, are you sure it's actually best if I forgive that person? If I be generous like that? If I don't do this or if I walk in sexual purity? Like, are you sure? We struggle with this, but we're to actually walk this out. So we're to give words of life. And the Bible says we're to give offerings. In verse 29 through 30, giving offerings. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me and you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with your mother and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. God wants his people to not only respect others, but him and doing it, combating against idolatry or of finances. We can actually honor God with offerings, with money. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce that your barns will be filled with plenty and your, rat, and your vats uh, will be bursting with wine. There is something beautiful to trust God with your needs and to trust him with the first of your needs. To say, God, I, I believe that you're God and you're gonna take care of me. I'm gonna seek your kingdom first and to honor him, not giving him your worst, but your best. To trust him in this. This is the idea of a tithe. Tithe is just a Hebrew word, which means tenth. And God would give in the law a tenth that they would be able to give to the people to provide for the leaders and the needs of the people and in the nation. And as you honor God, that those finances would be distributed and it would actually go and benefit the people of the land. Just like Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 say, if you honor God with your finances, you're actually going to be blessed. And you may not be blessed financially, but you may be blessed financially. You may be blessed in other ways to have solid leadership, to have people in place. We are able to give to God in all kinds of offerings. And the Bible talks about this to be able to show our love for him. And so it's not even just finances, talking about harvests and time and talent and our best to God. One commentator said this, a love for God means that we give him those things that belong to him, including our gifts and our offerings. Israelites may have been tempted to withhold these things like people today, but such an act would not please God because God loves a cheerful giver. You know, when you have to give God your first or your tenth, you're living by faith and you please God because you're trusting him. It's just an act of you to trust him. So this doesn't just apply to finances or, hey, now we're going to pass the offering plate. No, how do you trust God with your life? What does that look like for you? Moms, it's Mother's Day. You know, that's one of the first things you have to do as a mom. And it's freaky. When they let you leave that hospital, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in charge of this child. What is happening here? You just gave me 24-hour care. I went through labor. This thing came out of my body and now I'm responsible? Y'all need to trust God. I know as a dad, first time, I was scared out of my mind. I'm like, what in the world? We have to trust God with our, our kids. We have to trust God with our job. We have to trust God to just breathe. It's a lot of time that we're actually going to live a certain amount on this earth. And the Bible says you need to understand that so you can live wise and have that reality. But you can trust God in these things. So as we give tithes and offerings, we're blessed. We see God's provision come for us. We see him be our God and we don't have to hold back or be afraid of giving God our best because guess what? He blesses us as we do so. As we honor him, he honors us and we can trust him with our finances and our lives. And this is why verse 31 says, 
Trust him with your lives. Be consecrated. Consecration. You shall, you shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Consecration means this, to make or declare sacred. So where we get the idea of holiness, to be different or set apart for a special purpose. And ultimately, God would give his people at this time a whole bunch of different rules to be a holy people, to be different than the nations, and do things that were different than what was expected. If you saw an animal, didn't matter how it died, that was money. That was game on. Wow, meat, let's eat it. Only problem is, you don't know if that animal's been killed two hours or two days ago. There could be infections, diseases, all this different stuff. One of the ways that God actually protected his people is gave them some rules. Don't eat pork. Don't eat shellfish in this way. Be pure in this way. And it would make absolutely no sense to them. But as we know science and look back, we're like, wow, God's a genius. He knew about refrigeration before it even happened. Look at this. And so he gave special dietary rules that may have not made sense to them, but he asked for them to obey. God gives us special rules sometimes that may not make sense to us, but he asks for us to obey. It wouldn't be healthy to just eat a dead animal. One commentator said this prohibition from eating flesh that had been torn by beast is in the field uh, probably was due to um, being considered ritually unclean as well as it was unhealthy. It just made my mind remind myself and wanted to tell you this. I wrote this down. When God commands or emphasizes something in his word for us to be consecrated, a holy life that's against culture or may seem off to us, God doesn't want to hurt us. He doesn't want us to live in sin. He loves us. So if he tells us something that's contrary to the word, then you know what? Or to the world, then you know what? It's actually for our good. The Bible says that we are to be holy as God is holy, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. So God asked his people today to consecrate themselves and to obey him. And you know what? He doesn't allow us to sin. He says, don't go down this road and sin. It's actually for your good. I love you. Be a consecrated people. And they wouldn't have understand that. But sometimes we don't understand it either. Now, last two items of this grocery store. Do not pervert justice. Let's read verses one through three and six through eight because they really go together. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to uh, be a malice uh, witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. See, there's a crowd, culture. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert the justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now drop down to six, because it just said you shall not pervert justice with the many in the crowds and taking advantage of the poor. Well, what about the reverse side, the rich? You shall not pervert justice due to your poor in, your, in his lawsuit. So you can actually be rich, take advantage of the poor. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will acquit uh, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Now, the big idea is this. It says over and over again in verses 1 through 3, 6 through 
uh, 8, you shall not pervert justice. Uh, These laws are an expansion of Exodus 19.16, that ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And these verses uh, are saying over and over again, like, don't follow the crowd. Don't do this because they're doing that. You don't want to pervert justice. Doesn't matter just because everyone's doing it. There is a wrong and a right. There is ways to do this. And so verse 3 actually says, hey, don't side with the rich. But verse 6 says, well, don't side with the poor. Isn't that crazy that you can actually be siding with the poor and doing the wrong thing and siding with the rich and doing the wrong thing? God doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You can be rich and poor in your lifetime and still follow God. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're righteous. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you're unrighteous. And so this idea is don't show partiality either side you're on. You shouldn't take bribes to get glean and and, and these type of things. But the reality is we could be tempted and we could be tempted to prefer justice for personal gain. And this is especially hard as everyone is doing it. Or another way to say it, as it is common in the culture. We may say, well, 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 everyone, I mean, everyone doesn't claim that on their taxes. I mean, come on. I mean, but, but everyone watches that show. Or no, 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 all my friends do this. Or no, this is what's popular right now. We all sometimes have little catchphrases that we can get caught up in, but let's not forget what the Word of God says. Bad company corrupts good morals, and we are in this world, but not to be of this world. And so we don't get our cues and our standards from culture and what everyone is doing. Moms, help me out. If everyone's jumping off of a cliff, you know what I'm saying? Would you go ahead and do that? Yes, actually, people would do that. We should know that. We're creatures that follow the crowd. This is why God has to give us truth to make a hard stance and say, ah, actually, I know you want to get ahead, but you probably shouldn't deceive and lie because it's going to come back on you to do that. Verse 2 says, you shall not fall into the trap with many to do evil. Just because it's popular doesn't mean it's right. Just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean it's okay. And we need to get our standards from the word of God, not what the world says. So in verse 7, it says, keep far from the false charge, our bearing false witness, and do, don't do evil for personal gain because God will not acquit the wicked. We will uh, give an account to God for all of our actions, not to our friends and not to what people think is popular or right right now, not even in America or not even in the 21st century. We don't get our cues and our standards from that. This is why God has given us these standards. Now, last little nugget for you, and I think it's probably the best way to end. Verse four through five. Verse four through five, love your enemies. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates, you are uh, you're, you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it or leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. This verse tells us that we shouldn't just love our neighbors, but our enemies. Like if you see your enemy's animal and property and their value and what they're worth, and you're able to just leave it, no, no, don't just be civil. God wants us to be loving and giving. Step in there and love, care, bless. This includes everyone. Remember what Jesus said, well, what good is it if your friend does this and you're just kind to your friend, but like, 
True love is like when your enemy comes and you actually bless them. Again, God is giving us a command here that he first showed us how to love. This is what all of these commands are really talking about, loving your neighbor, interacting with people in a right, just, fair way, in a loving way. Because the Bible says, remember Romans 8, uh, 5, 8, tells us that while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. He loved us. He cared for us. This is the type of love that can transform a marriage, a community, a nation, the love of God. And this is the love that God gives us through the cross of Christ and his spirit as he redeems his people. He forgives our sin, gives us his spirit. And Romans 5, 5 says that the spirit of God pours out the love of God into our hearts that we can not now only know him, but now love other people. Just like as we've been loved, as we've received, we give to those. And this is why these 42 ordinances and laws are started butted up and started with how do we love God? And did you know what? Next week as we pick up, Pastor Robin's going to say, don't forget to love God. It's like love God and love people. And don't forget to love God. Because it actually matters how you live this life. Loving people. Well, you did it. Good job. The ordinance is an exodus. There's only 42. It's just a summary, right? Um, you know, one day, by God's grace, I'll teach you the book of Leviticus. It's not, it's not as intimidating anymore. Wow, your eyes got so big. <laughs> no! Here's what I want to say about it, though. Let's just be honest. It is a lot. I mean, isn't it a lot to love people? Like, think about just any relationship, just a handful of people, and think about if you could love them perfectly as God loved you. It's overwhelming even just with simple Bible studies and messages. How much more overwhelming should it be to try to apply this stuff and live this out? And this is just in a sample. And can I remind you as we close in this section in our message today, it's supposed to be overwhelming. That's the whole point of the law. It's supposed to get you to think, I can't do that. There's too much in this. I must need God. You're right. We can't do that. You can't even follow the Ten Commandments, let alone more morals of who God is and his righteousness and holiness. But there was one who did live a perfect life. For Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I actually came to fulfill it. He lived a life that we could not live and died a death that we should have died. And Jesus obeyed it perfectly, God in flesh. And so he actually died in our place lawbreakers, enemies. Why? For our hope. So that when we look at these passages, we can know, but wait, wait, it's about worshiping God. And then he transformed my heart so I could worship other people. Oh, and then he's giving me a reminder about worshiping God again. That's right. The law is there to show us a mirror of ourself that we need a savior and we need Jesus. So it's okay to be overwhelmed. The Bible says he loves you and cares for you. Cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. The biggest burden that you should have is saying, I can't do this and being liberated and free from God because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Jesus saves lawbreakers like me and you that look at passages like this and principles and say, well, I mean, that one I'm pretty good, but that one, eh, I ain't got that one yet. 
And he gives us his spirit and transforms us and redeems us so we can actually glorify him in the ordinary day stuff of life. Because remember, this section was after they had been redeemed and snatched out. When you read the scriptures in the Bible, God wants you to seek him first and then all these things. He wants to renew and transform your heart and your mind so you will play that out. And so let's thank him for the gospel. Let's thank him for the hope that we have as we close. We're going to just sing a song and take communion together as we close out our service to remember the work of the cross, to remind ourselves that we do bear much fruit when we abide in Christ, that we can't even look at passages like this and get principles and laws and rules and say, thank you, God, that you care about us enough, that you give us structure, that you give us principles, that you want to care for us, Lord, not just on the service, but with my family, with my job, with everything that I have. And so let's pray. And as we do, we'll take, sing a song and we'll put the elements of communion in the back table. Uh, it's for believers, those that would believe that Jesus would take away their sin. And we just would invite you, if you aren't a believer, to become one today, to take the elements and repent of your sin and turn to Jesus as we as a community, as a church, are just sinners saved by grace. We all should be praising God every time we look to scripture and saying, thank you, Lord, looking at the work he's done, how he's redeeming us, and even how he uses these Bible studies and this truth to even transform us week after week, day after day. And so let's do that now. God, we thank you so much for your grace, for your goodness. We pray, God, that just as we continue to move forth in this book of Exodus, that you would continue to give us truth to live by, to encourage us, to uh, equip us, Lord, to the calling that you have for us. I thank you, God, that we can turn to you with our not only our greatest need, but our all of our needs. For you satisfy, God. I pray we'd find our satisfaction in you. God, we want to be satisfied in you. And so we want to look uh, not just at these rules, but look to the rule maker, the one that gives life, that's satisfied. So we're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to take communion, God, but we just want to thank you. We want to bless you. And we want to take time to ponder in our hearts these beautiful truths from your word. And so would you continue to speak to us, minister to us, and may these last few moments together be powerful in the mighty name of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delray Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter where you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.